Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Providence Medical Grand Rounds for October. Uh, here coming from Medford. Uh, today, we're excited to have Dr. Robert Hendrickson from OHSU as our speaker on pesticide poisoning. Uh, Dr. Hendrickson is the program director for the Fellowship in Medical Toxicology, and he is board certified in both emergency medicine and medical toxicology. He practices emergency medicine at OHSU and is a medical toxicology inpatient consultant at OHSU and Dornbecker Children's Hospital. Dr. Hendrickson completed his medical school at the State University of New York Downstate Medical Center, um, Kings County in Brooklyn and completed residency in emergency medicine and fellowship in medical toxicology at the Medical College of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And he joined OHSU Emergency Department and the Oregon Poison Center in 2002. Dr. Hendrickson is a professor of emergency medicine and the medical director for the Oregon Poison Center and program director of the Medical Toxicology Fellowship. And we're pleased to have him today. Dr. Hendrickson. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you can hear me okay? Yes. Fantastic, thank you. I'd like to check before I get started. <laughs> uh, fantastic, well, uh, thank you for the intro. That was very kind. Um, I am going to talk a bit about pesticides. Now, pesticides is a, uh, a group is a um, huge topic. And so um, what I would like to do is talk a little bit about how patients are exposed and then sort of how um, anyone listening could get more information both acutely and, uh, you know, uh, sort of subacutely on um, pesticides. Because I don't think, uh, I would certainly not expect anyone to um, uh, sort of uh, leave any lecture on pesticides with an encyclopedic knowledge of, you know, 20 different chemicals and their effects and their treatments and things of that sort. So um, I'm hoping to kind of give uh, an idea of where to get more information. Uh, and then also we, uh, the second half of the talk, we'll talk about specific pesticides. Um, and the pesticides I chose were not, it's not every pesticide that you could have a patient exposed to. Um, but it's based on um, resources that I have that tell me which pesticides are used in Oregon and particularly in Southern Oregon and um, uh, also the ones that are most commonly used. Uh, so please understand that there are other uh, pesticides that I won't be discussing uh, specifically today, uh, but I'm happy to answer any questions that anyone has or, uh, you know, come back for pesticide number two lecture if we want. Um, so first is, how do people get exposed? And this is a really, really common method of um, <clears throat> using pesticides, the uh, backpack filled with uh, fluid pesticide and sort of a wand sprayer. Um, as you can see, uh, if the liquid is supposed to spray onto the, uh, onto the soil or onto the plants, um, but a fair amount of it uh, becomes uh, vaporized and aerosolized. Uh, so there can be a pretty significant amount of exposure. And you can see both of these people are uh, probably getting droplets on their face, um, you know, and that's the reason why they have the coverings over their head and their face and things of that sort. But this is a very typical application method. Um, and of course, 
you certainly have a uh, aerosol there or vaporization from the ground, but also um, the filling up the container, you get spillage on your hands and, <clears throat> and clothes and things like that. And we'll talk a little bit about that because I think that's probably one of the uh, higher risk um, uh, types of exposure. Uh, when it gets on your clothes and stays there for a longer, long time. And of course, um, there are other methods of uh, uh, distributing pesticides. This, there are planes, this is a helicopter. Um, and as we sort of move um, to the more modern age, uh, we'll be seeing a lot more of these, which um, of course, if it's a plane or a helicopter or uh, a drone, um, Certainly a drone decreases the risk to a pilot, uh, but um, it doesn't decrease the risk to someone who is in the field. And so that's another one of the many types of exposures we can see someone who is in the field either accidentally or they spray the wrong field while there are workers in it. <clears throat> Those types of events happen from time to time. And um, the, uh, the last type of event that I'm happy to talk to talk about if anyone has any questions, um, but certainly we get a lot of questions at the Poison Center about is called drift, where um, someone in say a neighboring yard or house or you know, residential area, uh, they'll spray the field and there'll be wind that will um, push the pesticides, the, the uh, aerosol over to someone else's property. And, and that can have big ramifications for, of course, if you have an organic farm and they're using non-organic uh, pesticides on the next farm, that's a, that's a big deal, but also um, exposure to pets and to livestock and to humans um, is obviously a potential there as well. And, you know, a small amount of uh, uh, vapor or a small amount of aerosolized uh, pesticide uh, usually isn't going to cause a major problem, but if it's a uh, chronic exposure or if it's getting on your garden where you eat the food, then uh, you're ingesting it. That's going to be a different type of exposure entirely. I'm going to spend most of my talk time talking about um, relatively acute exposures. Um, the long term chronic exposures are not really uh, uh, the health effects are not really worked out uh, particularly well for any of these chemicals, unfortunately, although they remain a concern, of course. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we also get pesticide exposures from sort of backyard um, people using herbicides, uh, pesticides from one of these sort of hand pumped um, uh, uh, distributors. And um, we uh, uh, we certainly get a lot of this as well with not only, uh, you know, moving it into the container and back, but also this is the type of person who uh, typically uses less personal protective equipment than someone who is a farm worker. So, first step uh, that we give to anyone who's exposed to um, uh, pesticides is uh, the, the typical first aid. Um, if it was an airborne exposure, move to fresh air, move to an area that it was not um, sprayed. If um, the uh, exposure was a spill, or if it was a liquid exposure, um, then water works well with most, almost all pesticides. So um, that should be the, uh, the decontamination uh, fluid of choice. 
Um, you certainly can add soap and things like that, <clears throat> but water should do the job. Um, the problem, of course, is a lot of times uh, if you're working on a farm and spill something, you don't have access to fresh water. You don't necessarily have a hose um, and uh, you may not have the option of just um, going and finding a place to decontaminate. And this is when we get into trouble with some of our farm workers where they will spill something, say on their jeans or on their shirt um, and not have the opportunity to wash it off. It will then stay there um, for, you know, eight, 10, 12 hour day um, when it's hot and the dermal absorption can increase. And so we do get occasionally people who uh, do get exposures like that. Um, <clears throat> one of the pieces of advice that I would have for uh, anyone sort of doing any farm work is if they have the opportunity uh, to bring a change of clothes to the farm, um, do so. Um, obviously, the best thing to do is to wash immediately with water, but um, putting back the soiled clothes <laughs> is um, um, is going to expose you more to the chemical and a lot of most people don't have the option of kind of going home um, you know if they have a, a, a relatively small spill so um, that's one piece of advice I try to give to people and, and, and hopefully that helps. So what do we do um, if there is an exposure we have a patient who has an exposure so there are short-term health effects that we all have to think about um, and that is a lot of what uh, we do at the Poison Center um, and sort of uh, helping with acute treatment. Um, there's also, when someone's exposed to a chemical, um, this also needs to be an assessment of the long-term health effects. Uh, generally, a one-time exposure um, to a relatively small or a small, relatively small exposure is not going to ca cause uh, long-term health effects. But um, some of the things that people use on farms is some of the pesticides. Um, Mostly they are, they have been um, uh, removed, uh, but some of them in the past certainly have been carcinogens. And that's certainly a concern that uh, we would have if you had an exposure. That's much more of a concern with chronic high level exposures, but um, certainly something that we think about. So what uh, can you do? Um, nobody expects all of us to have all of these things memorized. And so um, the Poison Center is available for consultation at any time. And that includes, um, you know, my patient mentioned that they're using this. What are the health, what, are, what, what kind of health effects would I expect from that? Um, we certainly have resources that we can find that information out for you. I will also give you some more information uh, that resources that I think will be really, really helpful. Um, but also, if you have a patient who is acutely exposed, um, then we would be happy to take that call. Um, for those that don't know uh, much about the Poison Center, uh, the person answering the phone is a nurse or pharmacist, and there are board-certified medical toxicologists on call to answer questions 24-7. Um, and of course, the call is uh, free to you, uh, free to the caller. So um, let me just, for uh, a minute, just remind you what the phone number is for the Poison Center. It's right down here, 1-800-222-1222. Uh, Other way to think about it is it's a bunch of twos with a one in the middle. Um, if you um, would, uh, another way to quickly get the contact information is if you send a text to 797979 with the word poison in it, uh, it will add a contact to your uh, cell phone. 
So I'll show you. Um, I promise this is not a scam. <laughs> uh, we, you know, uh, this is, if you text this, this is seven nine seven nine seven nine poison. This is what'll come up if you press that link. This page comes up, and then you have the option to add it to your contacts. Um, if you prefer, you can just simply put in Poison Center and type in that phone number there, so you always have access to it. So these are the types of cases we'll be happy to um, happy to discuss or happy to help in any way we can. So um, there's other references that I think are really really helpful, particularly for those scenarios where, say, a patient says, I use Dicamba, and your first thought is, you know, what's Dicamba, or what kind of long-term health effects, or does it cause cancer, or uh, what's the short-term health effects, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the first uh, reference that I have for you is called NPIC, um, and it's the National Pesticide Information Center. Uh, it's actually centered at Oregon State, um, and this is the website right up here on the upper right corner, uh, www.npic.oregonstate.edu. Um, they have a bunch of really good information. This is the beginning of their, their, their uh, data sheet or fact sheet page. Um, they have, I forget exactly how many, but 80 or 100, I would say, different pesticides um, with really, really informative fact sheets. Um, I'll give you an example of, I looked up malathion and here's all the things that they have. It's a couple of pages long, but what is it? Um, how do you get exposed? How is it absorbed? Um, what what does it do? What kind of symptoms that it, does it uh, uh, produce? Now, they are written toward the public, but the information is all there um, on what type of symptoms people get, if there is an antidote or treatment. Um, and then of course, obviously, if there's a patient involved, <clears throat> you can um, feel free to call the Poison Center. We're happy to take that call. So the second um, area of reference material that I highly recommend is from the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and it's this book on the right side here, um, we have this in our Poison Center. I have it in my office. It is a really, really good book on um, pesticides, uh, which ones are used, what kind of crops they're used on, what symptoms are produced, what are the antidotes, the doses to all the antidotes, all of those things. Um, it's all there. You can write to the EPA and ask for a copy. That's what we did to get it in uh, the Poison Center. Um, and they will send you a physical copy, uh, but it's also available at this website. Um, and it's available as a PDF, the entire thing, and then also individual chapters. It is uh, really, really good and I highly recommend it. It's got really accurate, um, helpful information in it um, to give you uh, an idea of what um, pesticides do to humans and um, how you can um, uh, treat your patients. The last part of this sort of the acute exposure section uh, before I move on to the specific chemicals is um, do you document the exposure? And this question comes up a lot. Uh, what I mean by that is someone gets exposed to a pesticide um, and is it important to measure that 
pesticide in their blood or urine uh, in order to care for them? And I would say the answer to that question is almost universally no. Uh, we don't need to know uh, what the serum concentration, there are some exceptions. Um, some are actually helpful, like, um, but for the most part, we don't need to document a blood, you know, a serum, a urine concentration. However, there are scenarios where I think that um, documenting someone's exposure may be helpful. Um, and I have been in those types of situations before when, um, say, a patient is pretty certain that they were exposed to something, but their employer uh, says that they weren't, uh, but they have symptoms that are consistent with an exposure to that chemical. Um, that's a scenario where it may be important to document that um, that chemical in their urine or blood. And I would say in general, I will show you some resources to find out more. In general, if you were to uh, uh, decide this is really important to document that this person was exposed, um, then we generally get a urine test and we freeze it as soon as we can. Um, and then figure out how to do the testing later, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit more uh, about that. The, um, uh, but in general, I would say we generally do not uh, uh, try to document their exposure unless it's a, a specific reason to do so. Also, I think the important thing about um, urine and blood concentrations of pesticides is that um, it's unfortunate, um, but we all have <laughs> pesticide concentrations in our urine. Um, if you look at, um, you know, say a hundred random urines of uh, patients who don't work in the farming industry, you will find trace amounts of pesticides in uh, people's urine. So the presence of a pesticide does not necessarily mean that they were exposed, particularly someone who's using it uh, every day or is around crops that are it's used on every day, uh, they will have a documented, potentially have a documented concentration. So we'll have to compare it to uh, what is considered the norms. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. But for now, there is a whole section of the NPIC website about using testing. And they have a couple of scenarios where they say, um, you know, this is the scenario. This is a case where it might be important to either differentiate, in this case, I think this person had a rash, and whether the rash was caused by this herbicide or whether it was another medical condition, that might be a reason why, uh, or for workers' comp reasons, those types of things. So uh, on the website, and I forgot to take a snapshot of this one, but on the website is actually a list of labs that will test for pesticides. Um, now, uh, there's always the issue of like your hospital, your clinic, your uh, organization has contracts with different labs and things like that. So, um, the, you know, that is always an, that is always an issue, but um, they do have a list of labs that will do these tests um, and they have a list of all the tests that they uh, that are available at those clinical labs. Uh, so it's a really nice re resource, this NPIC website. Um, and I highly recommend it. Um, so let's just say we were talking about malathione before. We look at malathion. Yes, malathion test is available in blood serum, um, in uh, plasma, and in urine. And I would always choose urine um, 
for uh, testing because it has a much higher chance of actually detecting it uh, since these most of these are concentrated in the urine. And so lots of different things here where you would um, potentially test for. Um, I'm going to go through a couple of chemi specific chemicals. Um, I will admit that I'm going to, there's a lot of chemicals on this list, but I'm going to go through them pretty superficially. Um, certainly, I wouldn't expect anyone to absorb everything you ever need to know about any of these individual chemicals, but I wanted to give you a more broad um, uh, uh, look at pesticides in general. You know, the term pesticides includes things that kill insects and things that kill plants and things that kill uh, fungi and then also um, fumigants, uh, soil fumigants is kind of a whole nother conversation. Um, but I thought that these are the, these are the um, 11 or so that are by far the, either the most commonly used or the ones that, that cause the most uh, severe uh, medical effects. There's lots of other chemicals that don't cause very much as far as medical effects. And so I've sort of skipped those just in the interest of time. So I will kind of go through these in order, insecticides first, then herbicides and fungicides, try to do a little bit of grouping and a little bit of splitting. And hopefully we kind of walk away remembering uh, at least some of this. So the organophosphates, um, it's, uh, you know, it's almost surprising to me that they're still being used, but they most certainly are. Um, they're very, very effective pesticides, and that's why they continue to be used. But um, this is one that I really uh, am concerned at. You know, if, if I had a family member who was working uh, in a, uh, on a farm uh, or in agriculture, I would be very concerned about this because uh, these are actually absorbed through the skin, through the lungs. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and of course, um, all of these are absorbed if you ingest them. Um, most of those scenarios are suicidal ingestions and not occupationally related. Um, however, uh, we certainly do see those cases. Um, acute exposure to organophosphate pesticides, and the names are the common names. There's a, a lots and lots and lots of them, but these are the, by far the most common uh, names, parathion, diazinon, uh, chlorpyrifos is very, very commonly used. And um, what acute exposure to that, and generally acute exposure um, would be uh, an inhalational exposure where something uh, is not typical. Um, a enclosed space or a long uh, inhalational exposure. Um, typically when people are spraying this with the, the wand sprayer, they don't get exposed to enough to have really significant symptoms, however, um, it is certainly is possible with some of these unusual circumstances. And most of the patients that we see, they get really, really sick, ingested for some reason. Now, most of those cases are suicidal ingestion, someone who's trying to kill themselves. However, there are certainly errors that happen uh, and certainly errors happen in the workplace all the time. Someone takes uh, a large container, pours it into a small container, uh, has a little bit left, doesn't know sure what to do with it, so pours it into a Gatorade bottle, uh, and then someone comes by and drinks the Gatorade bottle. That certainly happens from time to time. Um, so you certainly can see uh, some of these occupational accidental ingestions as well. Uh, so acute exposure can cause a variety of symptoms. It's increased acetylcholine, so you get stimulation of both nicotinic 
and muscarinic receptors. Um, the, the way that we, uh, you, the way that I usually memorize that is uh, dumbbells, which is the muscarinic, so diarrhea and diaphoresis, urination, meiosis, bradycardia, um, emesis, lacrimation, salivation. The other way to think about muscarinic is if you can produce fluid from anywhere in your body, you'll produce it, you'll sweat, you'll have rhinorrhea, you'll have uh, tearing, you'll have salivation, you'll have vomiting, diarrhea, um, and sweating. Uh, so that's sort of the muscarinic side and the nicotinic. It starts with a tremor, it moves to fasciculations, and then eventually to paralysis. And then the CNS effects include sedation and seizures. So uh, these can be really, really severe. Generally, um, the ones that we've seen that have been severe have all been ingestions of some sort. Um, the spray exposures, um, don't usually cause as many symptoms, though they can cause a partial. So I have certainly seen people who got sprayed uh, in the face and have a topical exposure and can get um, uh, meiosis, you know, so just, just eye findings and that type of thing, which uh, can be uh, cause blurry vision and can be uh, debilitating, uh, but isn't necessarily uh, exposure, uh, systemic uh, evidence of systemic toxicity. So if we do have evidence of systemic toxicity, um, we send buterol cholinesterase, and so RBC and plasma cholinesterase is what they're usually called, and that will give us an idea of how much of the cholinesterase system is being blocked or inhibited, um, and uh, give us an idea of when they recover. Um, but the treatment acutely is atropine for the fluid, particularly the fluid in the lungs, uh, and pralidoxime um, for uh, removing the organophosphate from um, the receptor site. So um, I can talk about this, uh, I could probably do a whole lecture on or a whole hour on organophosphate, so I'll move on, but I'm happy to talk more about, um, you know, uh, anything that anyone wants to talk to at the end of the lecture. Carbamates very similar to organophosphates. The difference is that they're generally shorter duration, generally um, not as severe a toxicity. Uh, and um, because they tend to leave the receptor site uh, or their target site by themselves, uh, we don't necessarily need to give them pralidoxine. The common names are like carbaryl, which can be uh, over the counter. Um, and uh, aldocarb and methamyl. These are all um, uh, used intermittently in uh, agriculture, but also can some of these can be found at Home Depot or any large, you know, big box store or uh, you know other store like that. So very very similar presentation. Um, you would treat it like organophosphates um until unless you had confirmation that it was a carbamate if you had confirmation it was a carbamate then i uh, probably wouldn't generally give pralidoxine but um again if in doubt just use it and figure it out later uh because there's usually a lot of confusion in these types of scenarios so um and the same uh there is a urine concentration that's available that's usually not something that we do because it doesn't change clinical management but if there's some compelling reason to document that this person was exposed for some reason then get a urine and freeze it and then uh go to the NPIC website and figure out how you can send that test or a call the poison center we're happy to try to help too
Right, pyrethroid is another very, very common um, pesticide. These are used in agriculture, but also are used uh, in home. Um, this is what's in a lot of bug bombs and insect sprays that uh, people use in their homes. Um, you can see some of the common names at the top there. Um, the, these are rapidly metabolized mammals and so generally have pretty low toxicity. Uh, however, uh, when spraying these or handling them, they can cause uh, two things. One, a contact, pretty severe contact dermatitis. So, um, and also they can cause, in some patients, they can cause bronchospasm, so uh, asthma, or, or even very rarely anaphylaxis. Um, but uh, it is a possibility. And I think the contact dermatitis is pretty common. Most people who are handling this know to use gloves, uh, but we all know that uh, fluids get underneath gloves sometimes and, and, and can get on shirts, soak the shirt, and then um, you can develop a pretty severe contact dermatitis. The rest of the symptoms on here, uh, well, I should say uh, other effects when you spill it on your skin um, can be these pretty unusual um, numbness. Uh, it usually starts with a stinging kind of burning sensation and then the area goes numb and that's a topical um, uh, distribution. So wherever you, if you say you spilled it on your left forearm, you, the skin of your left forearm would start to burn, not, you know, the, you'd have the sensation of burning and uh, paresthesias and then um, it can go numb. Usually that lasts a day or two and then goes away. The rest of the effects that I have listed here, the tremor, salivation, agitation, movement disorders are really limited to people who drink pyrethroid. So that would be an accidental or an intentional ingestion. Uh, very, very unusual to get those types of symptoms if you are exposed occupationally. There are a couple of cases where people um, used bug bombs in an enclosed space and entered and stayed in there for a long time and developed, did develop some of these symptoms. So um, that type of scenario certainly does happen, but in an agricultural setting, uh, it would be pretty unusual to get the rest of the sort of CNS symptoms. And there's no specific antidote. Uh, it's just time and of course, uh, remembering to decontaminate the skin. Um, any patient who's exposed to uh, a vapor or aerosol or something um, that uh, collects on the clothes or the skin as a liquid uh, should have a skin decontamination. All right, a couple of things with um, with the pyrethroids, organophosphates, and carbamates. They they have additional toxicities that are um, interesting. Um, Many of them are mixed with these two compounds at the top of the screen, uh, which are, uh, the intent is to inhibit the breakdown of all of those. Um, they are very commonly combined with the products and although they're not inherently, they don't have much in the way of inherent toxicity, it's always possible that they could inhibit the metabolism or breakdown of those. So they may cause um, a patient to have, instead of short-term symptoms sort of uh, longer term symptoms than they would have if they had just been exposed to the product by itself, but there's no real inherent toxicity with them. And there's no real evidence that they have a really clinically relevant prolonged course 
Um, it's just that they are uh, mixed with these and so often. Uh, and this, you know, this becomes a problem. We often see pesticides that are mixed together, even though they're not supposed to do that um, necessarily. Um, and so sometimes the history we get is not entirely uh, straightforward. Uh, the other aspect of a lot of these pesticides is diluent. So, um, and I will talk about glyphosate in a little while, which has uh, a bunch of surfactants, which are probably more toxic than the uh, glyphosate itself. Um, many of the diluents in the pesticides I've talked to up till now have petroleum-based um, diluents, which can lead to, which generally with ingestion, can lead to CNS depression, um, and with ingestion can lead to aspiration pneumonitis. So they can complicate the course. It's not always just the uh, active ingredient that's listed on the bottle. Uh, it's sometimes the other ingredients as well. Um, the, the other aspect of this that I'll just mention because it has helped me several times now is if you have an unknown patient, um, in other words, a patient who we don't know what happened to them, um, I have found that um, when people drink uh, pesticides with petroleum-based diluents, they tend to have um, the watery diarrhea that smells like petroleum products. So you often will sort of detect the diluent mo more so than you'll detect the organophosphate. And I've had more, um, a couple of children that I've taken care of who we figured it out when, um, their stool smelled of like diesel fuel or gasoline, um, and then uh, realized that they had ingested something in the in the garage. Um, so less so less so helpful for agriculture, but <laughs> uh, still uh, 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 something that may help in clinical. The last group of uh, insecticides I'll talk about are neonicotinoids, and uh, there's been a lot of talk about these for, um, you know, they are the most common insecticide in both the U.S. and in the world, and a lot of issues with them, uh, with uh, killing things that uh, we didn't necessarily want to, right? They wanted to kill the pest insect, but they killed bees as well, um, and that has been a big uh, problem, particularly with spraying and aerial spraying and um, spraying from the backpacks, like what I was talking about before. Um, you can see some of the names. Amidacloprid is probably the most common by far. Um, but these are generally um, irritants. So if you were exposed to an aerosol, um, I would expect it to cause mucous membrane irritation. Um, and but generally the symptoms the severe symptoms we generally only see um, when people ingest neonicotinoids so it's not it's always possible that they could get you know soaked with it and it could um, uh, you know they could inhale it for a long period of time and develop symptoms but generally um, we see it with people ingesting it when they do ingest it they get nicotine like um, symptoms tachycardia, bradycardia, agitation, seizures, ventricular dyshrhythmias. Um, there's no specific antidote, so it's just decontamination and supportive care. Um, and uh, again, these are, the aerosol exposures are usually just mucous membrane irritation. So uh, speaking of mucous membrane irritation, I'm gonna switch to herbicides and then to fungicides. And I would say if you just want 
if you, the, the, the biggest, uh, sort of the, the biggest piece of information for all of the herbicides and all of the fungicides is they're all mucous membrane, uh, eye, mouth, nose irritants. Uh, many of them are skin irritants as well. Um, so uh, again, most of these things, the severe toxicity comes when you, when you ingest it, not when you inhale a small amount, but certainly, uh, and most of the herbicides are not well absorbed through the skin as opposed to some of the pesticides like organophosphates, which can be absorbed through the skin pretty well. Um, this is uh, just the use of herbicides in uh, the country. Um, Data is a little bit old, but it's not all that different. I'm going to talk about the top four, mostly because they um, are uh, four very common herbicides used in Oregon, but also um, because they make up about 80 plus percent of all the herbicide use in the United States. Uh, and this uh, glyphos glyphosate is the by far the most commonly used herbicide in the US and in Oregon. Um, the uh, pathway that it takes, the uh, it's inhibiting a, pa a pathway that an enzyme that is not present in, in humans. So, um, in general, small amounts of glyphosate um, shouldn't cause uh, severe toxicity uh, in the short term. Um, they are all glyphosate is all are all um, manufactured with surfactants um, and. In many ways, those surfactants have been more of a problem than the glyphosate itself. Um, not that your patient will necessarily know the exact surfactant that's in there, uh, but just uh, understanding that it's not always the glyphosate is not always the primary pesticide. It is sometimes the diluent or the additives that they add in. Um, for inhalation, as I mentioned, pretty much all herbicides have mucous membrane irritation. Um, so it's very common to get, uh, you know, uh, irritation, redness, uh, even some skin swelling around the eyelids and things like that. Uh, if it's ingested, then GI irritation as well. Uh, and they can get very, very sick if it's ingested. They can, it leads to metabolic acidosis and hypotension and multi-organ failure, um, dysrhythmias and a pneumonitis uh, sort of slash ARDS. So they can get quite, quite ill, but generally when people get ill, it's because they ingested it, not because they were exposed uh, in an occupational setting. Uh, the triazines also, uh, you, you'll see a pattern here with most of the herbicides that are not very well absorbed in the lungs or skin, which means that you don't get much in the way of systemic um, toxicity from typical occupational exposures. Uh, that does not mean that they don't get mucous membrane irritation because they certainly do, but we they don't absorb much of the drug or much of the chemical um, through the skin or through the lungs. Um, most of the toxicity happens again when you ingest it either accidentally or purposely, um, and that can lead to metabolic acidosis. Um, and uh, these can be pretty severe if uh, a large amount is ingested. Same pattern, the chlorophenoxy uh, or chlorophenoxy uh, compounds 2,4-D and dicamba. Um, again, not particularly well absorbed through the lungs and skin. Most of the toxicity we have seen is either dermal uh, or it is from an ingestion. So an exposure 
uh, dermally uh, may lead to um, some mucous membrane irritation. Also, there's been a loss of taste that's been described, pretty well described. Um, that's probably from uh, absorption, uh, at least locally in the tongue. Um, and then there have been some cases of uh, occupational exposures that have led to uh, weakness. So um, how exactly it gets absorbed is probably a, you know, sort of gets on their shirt, gets on their jeans. They uh, absorb it very, very slowly over 10, 12 hours. Um, but there has been some muscle weakness that has been uh, explained uh, or has been um, uh, attributed to uh, dicamba uh, exposures occupationally. Um, which does get better uh, in days. Uh, but um, again, if you are exposed dermally and wash it off, then there shouldn't be much of a problem. If it, you know, soaks your jeans and you're, you wear your jeans for another 12 hours, you can get slow uh, dermal uh, absorption. The ingestions get very, very sick. Uh, acidosis, multi-organ failure. Um, they actually can get a... Um, myopathy so uh, and also a neuropathy but uh, the muscle weakness is, can be relatively profound and can last uh, for several weeks there's even reported cases of it lasting uh, for months um, so we do have some um, ability to intervene with chlorophenoxy compounds there can be hemodialyzed so if you did have someone who ingested a large amount um, that is potentially an option. Um, also, alkalization of the urine does increase the clearance, particularly of 2,4-D. So um, if you have a complex case like that, we would have, be happy to, to help uh, under poison centers, so please call. All right, uh, paraquat is very interesting chemical. It's, uh, I was actually surprised to see how often it is used in agriculture given its toxicity. Um, though its toxicity is mostly from ingestion, just like the other herbicides, uh, the people who get really, really sick have been almost exclusively people who have ingested paraquat. Um, but uh, this is a restricted use uh, contact herbicide. Um, it is also just like the other herbicides, a, uh, a dermal and uh, mucous membrane irritant. Um, these can be quite severe. There's been cases where the skin uh, not only just gets irritated, but then actually develops skin necrosis. Um, so these are, I would say, more severe than the average uh, herbicide. Um, and then with ingestion, the concern with paraquat is that it uh, does two things. One, it, uh, well, three things. It causes a corrosive GI um, effect. It also causes renal failure, and it also causes a delayed onset of pulmonary fibrosis, which um, is uh, quite severe and uh, irreversible. So uh, this is one of those chemicals that if I hear someone ingested it, I am very, very concerned um, and has a fairly poor prognosis. Um, the occupational exposures, if it's washed off quickly off the skin, generally do very well. Um, but if someone ingests it, I'm quite concerned. And, and there's a whole protocol for uh, using to treat someone who has been exposed to uh, ingestion of paraquat, which um, 
call the poison center because we're happy to help with this. Um, because of the lung effects or oxidant effects, we tend to withhold oxygen um, and only give oxygen to a saturation of about 90. Um, and that seems to decrease the amount of pulmonary fibrosis. And then there's a cyclo, excuse me, cyclophosphamide, methylprednisolone um, course uh, that uh, in two trials decreased mortality significantly. So, um, but these are rare enough that uh, we're happy to take receive that call at the poison center. Diquat is very similar to paraquat, except it doesn't have as much dermal effects and does not have the pulmonary as many as much of the pulmonary effects. Um, Diquat is much more commonly used in agriculture as well, um, and similar, very very similar effect if ingested, with the exception of that pulmonary fibrosis, which generally does not occur, uh, and if it does occur, it is much less severe. Um, so I would say. Comparing the two, uh, much safer, but um, uh, also causes significant issues. All right, my last section is on fungicides, and then we'll see if there's any questions. Um, this I will also sum up with saying that they are, in general, fungicides cause mucous membrane irritation with very little in the way of uh, acute systemic toxicity. Um, these are the four big groups of fungicides that are used, um, well, locally and also in the country. Um, copper is not as common, but I added it because it does have some significant toxicity. So kind of go through these uh, individually, but um, for the most part, it's going to be mucous membrane irritation. So um, the strobilorin group, this is a list of some of the uh, names. Each of the things I'm talking about are sort of a overarching name uh, with individual products beneath them. Biocarbamates um, are interesting. These are very, very common. Xyram in particular is extremely uh, common. Um, you may recognize some of these uh, products. Despite the, having the word carbamate in them, they do not cause carbamate toxicity. They do not cause cholinergic toxicity. Um, they are mucous membrane and eye irritants. Uh, the one thing that's interesting about these uh, is that they may cause a disulfiram effect in some patients. So it is very possible to have an, uh, a farm worker who uh, sprays or uh, a pesticide, uh, sorry, a fungicide um, and then uh, absorbs some through, mostly probably through dermal, um, and then goes and has a drink and has a disulfiram reaction. And for those, I know disulfiram reactions are becoming less and less frequent <laughs> as the years go by. Uh, those of you who have not seen one, um, flushing reaction with uh, potential and vomiting, um, with the potential for um, hypotension as well. Uh, we used to give disulfiram uh, to people to quit drinking because every time they drank ethanol, uh, they would have a disulfiram response and get flushing and vomiting and feel terrible. Um, that is not something that people use very often, although we have had a couple of cases in the last couple of years where uh, people have been put on disulfiram. Um, so it's still out there somewhere. Um, but these are sort of an occupational exposure that um, can certainly lead to uh, these types of reactions. Um, Mancozeb, 
um, is also very commonly used. Um, this also causes mucous membrane irritation, despite having the carbamate name in there, it does not cause cholinergic toxicity and does not cause disulfiram reactions. Um, there is some toxicity with ingestion, very little when, when it comes to this typical occupational exposures. Um, and there is some concern with long-term um, exposure, uh, particularly long-term, very heavy exposure. Um, the man part of mancozeb is manganese, uh, and it is possible that you could uh, absorb manganese over a very long period of time um, to develop manganese toxicity. Um, this would be extremely unusual and would be decades of very, very heavy use, um, but Manganism can be uh, somewhat debilitating and uh, leads to um, personality changes and uh, tremor and Parkinsonian type symptoms. Uh, so uh, something to uh, keep in mind if, uh, but it would be a very, very unusual case uh, for that to happen. And then my last topic is copper. Um, again, this is not that commonly used anymore, but um, copper acetate and copper sulfate can still be used and are still used in certain situations in agriculture. Um, again, mucous membrane irritation. Uh, what makes this a little different is when people ingest it, um, they can get uh, corrosive GI symptoms plus multi-organ failure. Um, it's an oxidant, so they can get hemolysis and methemoglobinemia. So an ingestion of copper sulfate uh, is uh, something that can be uh, have very severe toxicity. Uh, we're happy to uh, help at the poison center if you ever see a patient like that, because um, they may also need some specialized care like chelation for the copper overload. So um, these are really, really complicated cases. That's why I'm bringing it up. Copper's not used in agriculture that much anymore, but it is still listed as being used in Oregon. Um, so um, I wanted you to be aware. Well, um, that kind of wraps up what I wanted to say. Um, I will, uh, these are the three resources I would love for you to know. I have a slide, two slides ahead that have all of that uh, website and contact information and that type of stuff. Um, I did um, want to put in a plug for uh, anyone out there who is uh, interested in um, poison center uh, and pesticide safety materials. We have a variety, um, everything from stickers to magnets to um, you know, uh, brochures and things that you can uh, hand out or give to patients. Um, so if anyone would like that type of material and uh, most of these, particularly the pesticides one we have in both English and Spanish. Um, so if uh, that is something that you're interested in, uh, Sharice Pizarro Osilla's uh, email is right down here uh, and I will add it to the uh, last slide as well. And I'm going to skip past this and go right to this. This is um, my contact information. This is my uh, email. Um, if you have questions after this, please feel free to uh, email me. I'm happy to try to help. Uh, that's the phone number for the Poison Center. 
Um, and the some of the other resources that I talked about during the lecture, the NPIC website uh, and um, the EPA website where they have all of that pesticide information. Why don't I stop here and I'm going to add Sharice's email while we're. Uh, at least I'm going to try. While we're answering questions, so I'm happy to take questions. Thank you, Dr. Hendrickson. Um, mm -hmm. We do have uh, a question from um, somebody in the audience uh, about uh, marijuana, CBD, hemp grows in Southern yeah. Oregon, both legal and illegal. And uh, um, maybe the information that neighbors that grow say that each type of plant has different recipe of pesticides and enhancement. Um, and the products change as the plants mature. And do you have a sense of what they are using at different life cycles of the plants? Uh, or is it, um, um, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of that down here. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, this is one of those things that it's, um, I don't have any specific information. Um, I, I can, yeah, so, so there's legal grows and then there's the illegal grows, and those are sort of very different uh, because uh, legal marijuana grows have very tight regulations about what kind of pesticides you can use. Um, all of the legal grows have the product tested for, I fire last time I checked, it was something like 250 different pesticides and herbicides and fungicides, and they have to be negative for all of them. There are a few that they are allowed to use, um, but uh, that's the legal grounds, <laughs> unfortunately. And um, I think that it is the illegal grows or uh, the ones that are not going through regulators. Um, I don't know what they're using, given that they're uh, doing it illegally. My guess is that they're using all of the above that I talked about today. Um, I know that cannabis is a uh, plant that benefits greatly from uh, heavy pesticide use. In other words, it grows much bigger and much better if you uh, can eliminate pests. Uh, and my concern about those is that um, as opposed to most of the talk that I, you know, most of the time that I talked about today, um, where you're in an open field, a lot of these, um, a lot, of, some of these are actually, uh, you know, uh, tented in, um, and in enclosed spaces. So um, the exposures can be uh, magnified because I think a lot of the exposures that you get, you know, if you get a, just an aerosol exposure to most pesticides and it just sort of blows by uh, and you inhale it, uh, I, don't, I don't think that's good for anyone. I don't recommend that, but it's, it, it, with the exception of mucous membrane irritation, it's probably not going to call are not gonna to cause too much in the way of systemic toxicity. But if you are inside a uh, covered area spraying pesticides um, that are not designed to be you know, indoors, then um, you increase your chances of being exposed. So uh, I don't know. I wonder where we could find that information. I'm trying to think out loud a little bit. Wow. <laughs> uh, I wonder, you know, I wonder if the Oregon li liquor and cannabis uh, OLCC 
whatever that stands for. Uh, commission, that's what it is. Um, I'm going to make myself a note to check with OLCC and see if they have any information on that, and I will send it along if I find something out. All right, thank you. Yeah, of course. It's a great question. I'm not sure, do we have any other questions? Yeah. Okay, on my side, I see a question or I mean, um, from Jonathan Jones, trauma coordinator, PMMC. Greatly appreciate the presentation. Yeah. Thanks for chatting with us today. I really uh, appreciate poison control and the, and the people. Um, we have an extensive networks. Was this right. what you That's asked the one about I had the just, year one? Yeah, okay. I just had read oh. that one. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, and for uh, those in the audience, the uh, the link to the evaluation is in the question and answer chat. And please remember to do your evaluation. Um, and I think if there's no other questions, we really appreciate uh, your time today, Dr. Hendrickson. Absolutely. Very informative. Great. Well, I'm happy to help and uh, thank you for inviting me. And, um, you know, Poison Center is always a resource for all of you. So please feel free to take advantage of us. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank you take very care. much. You're welcome. Okay. Bye bye.